how do fighter pilots or astronauts or emergency room physicians, how do they think about risk? How do they detect what's happening in their environment around them? How do they diagnose the problem? And then how do they react and respond? There's commonalities between any kind of uh, high-risk, high-consequence environment and software engineering in that it's about how the humans are perceiving the world around them and how they're making sense of that. Hello, I'm Martin Thwaites. And I'm Jessica Kerr. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OllieCast for short. A monthly series where we talk about how we can make production systems more observable, more reliable, and easy to maintain. OllieCast is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. That's at O-11-Y-C-A-S-T. So one of the interesting ways in which these things are connected is that it's about observability into not just the technical aspects of the system, but the socio-technical aspects of the system. So in resilience engineering and kind of human factors work, uh, we use a technique called process tracing, which is similar to a lot of the tracing that you might do within a software system, is that you look at data both above the line and below the line. So both what's happening... What line is that? (laughs) That's the line of representation. So I'm referring to a model that uh, the late Dr. Richard Cook uh, presented in the Stella report. And basically what it, it was, was a way of kind of broadening our thinking about observability into the system being just about the technical aspects and the technical traces of what's going on. And instead looking at the human side of things and how are the people that are using the system, building the system, maintaining the system, repairing the system, actually coordinating, collaborating, noticing what's happening, uh, and bringing their knowledge about the goals and priorities of the organization to bear in how they uh, interact with the system below the line. So below the line is the software, and above the line is the people? Yeah, that's a that's a good way to think about it. Below the line is is kind of uh, the abstracted sense of working in software systems. So it's things that we can't necessarily directly touch, we can't necessarily directly interact with, um, but we interact with the software system through clicks, through command line, and through these representations about what's happening. Uh, so Honeycomb is all about giving you representations of what's happening below the line in the software. Yeah, absolutely. But it it does so in a way that helps make sense of the goals, the priorities of the organization as well, because it kind of helps us to say, what's an anomaly? What is system performance? What's nominal system performance? What's off nominal system performance? And then that helps the people that are tasked with managing and maintaining that system to take their knowledge of the goals and priorities of the organization and to make sense of that, to actually derive insight from the monitoring that they're doing below the line. Right. I should have said observability in general. Honeycomb is just one instance of that. But but yeah, observability is about the system tells you about itself. Yeah. And that makes it from below the line to above the line. Yeah. And then you're talking about continuing the the 
tracking the tracing of what's going on with what the people are doing. Yeah, it's a way of making sense of what does that information tell us about what the, uh, I won't use the word appropriate here, but what what kinds of actions are going to help steer the system towards the kind of performance that we want and away from the kinds of performance that we don't want. But I think the sort of the bigger point here as it relates to sort of LFI is that it gives us observability into how the people side of the system and the software side of the system actually work together effectively. So this is kind of broadening this lens away from purely technical failure to say, well, if properly handling uh, incidents and properly managing the system also involves knowing who the right person to recruit to an event or an incident is, that's part of the coordination. If it is about being able to uh, get access or, or more information, it's about being able to pull the organizational levers that enable you to do that. So it's really about thinking very broadly about what the system actually means. I think that's a really good time for Laura to introduce herself so we know who we're talking to. Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, lead the research program at Jelly.io and our product is a incident management platform and incident analysis platform that is really designed to sort of uh, connect these two parts of the system, the people side and the technical side of things. And my background is in sort of risk and safety in Uh, natural resource industries and physical resource industries. And I arrived in software by way of cognitive work. And so when we start to think about how do, you know, fighter pilots or astronauts or emergency room physicians, how do they think about risk? How do they detect what's happening in their environment around them? How do they diagnose the problem? And then how do they react and respond? There's commonalities between any kind of uh, high-risk, high-consequence environment uh, and software engineering in that it's about how the humans are perceiving the world around them and how they're making sense of that and then how they're directing not only their own activities and their own actions, but that of a broader group. And so I've had the good fortune of studying software engineers uh, for about six years now and looking at what are the ways that we can design tooling, what are the ways that we can design work teams and design work practices to help support that process of noticing uh, what's happening, responding appropriately to what's happening, um, and then coordinating, collaborating uh, to help maintain the, the broader organizational goals. So you mentioned LFI. Um, I believe that everybody else here went to a conference called LFI. Um, I'd love to know a little bit about the conference. Yeah. And, and what LFI stands for? LFI stands for learning from incidents. And the LFI is a bit of a shorthand. It's a bit of a catch-all to describe a range of approaches and orientations towards how we think about site reliability, how we think about you know, operating continuous deployment systems. And it involves uh, safety science, resilience engineering, uh, human factors, engineering psychology. And 
it is drawn from a number of different kind of exemplars of how safety science and domain practitioners have partnered and worked together to enhance and improve understanding of how do we support work. And so an example of this is in healthcare uh, in the early 90s. Many of the sort of technical conferences that were going on involved just physicians and nurses and, you know, healthcare practitioners. And then uh, some very insightful practitioners said, hey, we have a bit of a problem in understanding fully how to handle the types of complex and changing problems that we see in our world. So they invited some safety science researchers at the time to help give them a fresh perspective on the nature of the problems that they were facing, uh, some of the techniques and strategies to help uncover what makes that work hard. And that has been a factor in nuclear power, in aviation, uh, as I mentioned, healthcare, in a wide number of domains. And so software is really extending that legacy by inviting safety science researchers and human factors specialists to help understand and give fresh perspective to the types of problems that uh, we can see in software. So to answer your question, Martin, of what was uh, the LFI conference is this was the first time we brought together the community. So this kind of started in a Slack community. It started around some folks who had attended Lund University, which is a, a human factors and system safety uh, master's program. And we brought together this group of interested software practitioners with safety science researchers, academics, uh, and just a, a broad range of people kind of thinking about and working with complex adaptive systems uh, to share stories about incidents, to share their understanding of theory, to talk about research that has been going on, um, and to talk about some of the programs that software organizations are, I should say the programs and the experiments that many software organizations are undertaking to try and improve resilience um, and reliability within their organization. You mentioned something earlier as we improve reliability. You said that safety science these days is about how do we support work? And I noticed that that's different from what I used to think of safety science as being about, which was more like, how do we prevent accidents? Yeah, that's a really good insight. So there's there's kind of this academic street fight that's happening right now within safety science. And this is between two different camps. One which sort of says it's about preventing accidents. It's about sort of like preventing humans from making mistakes and preventing, you know, heuristics and biases from influencing, uh, you know, thinking in these kinds of domains. And the other camp is sort of saying, no, no, no. As the world is getting more and more complex and more and more interdependent and the types of technology that we're using in the systems that we're building, be that healthcare, aviation, you know, energy distribution, as those systems are getting more complex and interdependent, it's not necessarily about preventing the accidents. It's about supporting the people that are involved in building the kinds of technologies that can help adapt to unexpected events and to surprises. 
And so this kind of dichotomy that's happening right now, software has recognized right out of the box, these your systems are complex, they're dynamic, they're always changing. Um, and so it's hard. It's hard work, hard cognitive work to actually be able to maintain and manage these systems and to be able to anticipate all of the kinds of problems that you're going to have to solve. And so in that way, it's less about preventing accidents and more about being prepared for surprising or unexpected events. Because we recognize that we're not going to prevent all the accidents. Yeah. We're, we're going to le- prevent all the accidents or all the, all the things that could possibly go wrong. We're going to learn as we go. And we learn both during incidents, but what you're talking about is a kind of getting better at responding to incidents that also supports everyday work. Yeah, so I think that, like, first of all, the comment about we recognize that we're not going to prevent all accidents, I don't think that's as widespread. I think that's a signal that, like, you have been thinking about this uh, and and diving into some of the, the conversations about resilience and reliability. That's true. Some old school monitoring is like, well, we need an alert if any request takes more than two seconds. Yeah. Welcome to reality. Yeah. And well, that's a really good example because it's like, does that actually take into account the fact that if all we do is create alerts, then we're increasing the cognitive difficulty for a practitioner when three years on, sometimes even, you know, two months on, we're just looking at a whole cluster of alerts, many of which may be contradictory or conflicting or or maybe, you know, confusing to the uh, practitioner. And so we need to be thinking about these things in terms of how do, in time-pressured, ambiguous, and uncertain environments, how does the human brain work? How does the human brain work, like, with the tools and technology that they're working with? And then how do they work collectively across a distributed team? And that's a very different way of thinking about supporting, you know, a software engineer with their hands on the keys than saying, just don't make mistakes. Just be correct in all of your assumptions and all of your interpretations all of the time. And this is learning from incidents versus root cause analysis. Yeah, that's a, that's a shorthand way of saying it for sure. There's a collection of techniques that include the sort of root cause analysis or, you know, failure modes analysis that kind of have this paradigm, this worldview that all of the problems can be predicted and that, uh, you know, we can kind of eradicate human error. We can eradicate mistakes and slips and, you know, cognitive biases and create this sort of perfect uh, responder. And what we say is, no, people are doing their best. Um, They're coping with a lot of complexity and they're coping with a lot of variability. And the timescales that they're dealing with these things they're not sitting back and having one piece of information come in and they can reason about it and make sense of it. And then another piece of information comes in. These are happening on the order of seconds and microseconds. And you're getting a whole lot of new information coming in, oftentimes thanks to monitoring and observability tools. And so the cognitive work that goes into making sense of that in real time is actually extraordinarily challenging. And so we're looking at how do we support that capacity we support that ability as opposed to how do we limit and constrain the ways in which sometimes people get overwhelmed by information. 
And there's that inner conflict, isn't there, of um, engineers that you have to accept that your system is broken. Um, yeah. You don't know where yet, yeah. <laughs> but um, it is broken somewhere. Yeah. And it's just a matter of degrees as to whether you're willing to accept that level of broken. Because if we sit back and just wait for things to be perfect and, you know, find every single bug in our platform, nothing will ever be delivered ever. Yeah. So we've just got to accept those things. And I think that idea of learning from the incident and then trying to be better is a really, really important thing. What you just said is so on point. And it's in, it's amazing how insidious that worldview that we can sort of like that systems are always performing optimally and that humans are always performing optimally and that the world is not full of surprise and it's not messy and unstructured. Uh, it's amazing how prevalent that is. And even for myself, kind of coming from uh, the safety and risk domain, I came from a world in which I thought we can create rules and regulation and work processes that can help people, you know, to sort of color within the lines and stay within the lines. But also my experience of working in those worlds is that no plan survives first contact with the environment in which you're trying to execute it <laughs> because the world is messy and it's unstructured and problems are often difficult to see. And another aspect of kind of what you're saying about systems operating in degraded mode is that it doesn't account for the hidden pressures and constraints that organizational goals and, you know, objectives have that often limit our ability to optimize a system around one criteria. Because we're thinking about profitability, we're thinking about, you know, uh, compliance, we're thinking about quality, we're thinking about user experience. And so we're constantly making trade-offs and adjusting performance relative to what is the most important criteria to optimize on here. So do you think a lot of this is about thinking about, from a customer perspective, I've been thinking a lot about how we, in roles around um, SREs is thinking more about the customer, thinking more about the individuals who are using the platform versus the platform itself. How does that relate to that, that line that you were talking about where, you know, under the hood, you've got CPU metrics and things like that. And then actually throwing that around to thinking about a customer because a customer is way more important. Yeah, way more important than what? Then thinking about the the underlying hardware, the underlying systems, it's about that user experience, and you know the the hardware can fail, right? But if the user experience is important, right? Yeah, I think that like what you're pointing to here is kind of an interesting problem. Is that there's multiple perspectives that are relevant to consider when we think about what we mean by performance within these systems. And so that is like, absolutely, the customer is going to dictate, you know, other important perspectives such as like, you know, profitability, like where we're going strategically. But those multiple diverse perspectives often have different goals and priorities, and they have different ways of sort of accomplishing what they need to do within the system. And sometimes organizations are good at being explicit to say, here's where the user experience is a top priority. Under these conditions, the user experience is a top priority. But most of the time, 
it's often left to the frontline practitioners to say, how do I prioritize and most importantly, reprioritize goals when the system starts falling down around me? And an example of this is, you know, if you have a, a you have a service outage and you are suddenly faced with this possibility that you can either keep the system down for a little bit longer, and so you're going to degrade the user experience, but it's going to enable you to get more information about the nature of the problem so that you have better capacity to understand what's been going on and to be able to respond in future. You have this like trade-off here between you know, what are the priorities and how does that factor into the, uh, you know, the, the long-term sort of goals of the organization. And so I think that like the, the ways in which you are reprioritizing, you're revising, you are reconfiguring as the world unfolds and as the system, you know, continues to grow and change, that that is often left to frontline practitioners or teams to kind of determine this and to communicate back up. So there's this constant dance around the pressures from different parts of the organization. So Laura, thanks so much for joining. One of the things going back to the topic of the conference itself was there were a lot of great speakers, as you talked about, both from uh, academia and from industry and doing a lot of really interesting work. You know, we had Sarah Butt over at Salesforce Mm -hmm. and Alex Elman over at Indeed talking about the issues of the multi-party dilemma, I think is what they called it, where you can have an incident that involves multiple organizations. And so how do you handle that and how do you learn from that so that you can build a more resilient system when you've got these dependencies? Uh, We also had some folks like Dr. Ivan Popoliti, who spoke about his work with the Forest Service and instituting the learning review there. Those were a couple that I found super interesting, but what are some of the other talks that happened at the conference and what did you find really interesting? So those were all excellent talks. And I think it kind of, the way we were thinking about the program was how do we have this mix of software engineers, site reliability engineers, managers, you know, the, the organizational perspective of here's what we're trying, here's what's working, here's what's not working, uh, that, that sort of perspective, as well as the research and the theoretical side of things. Um, and then we had a number of talks that kind of merged those two as well. They said, hey, we learned about this kind of systems analysis and we tried to apply it to our incidents and here's how that went. Um, So there was a good kind of mix across the the program of that and then as well as the incident stories. Um, And those were sort of in our hallway track, I'm making kind of air quotes here, um, in our hallway track, which was not recorded because we wanted to try and, you know, protect the, the ability to talk very frankly and transparently about failure and try and normalize that a little bit. And uh, the feedback that we got from participants was like, that was amazing and well worth the price of admission to hear, you know, that some of the things that I'm facing in my organization are, you know, very widespread. And so hearing other people's strategies and approaches um, was really useful. 
In terms of some specific talks, the ones that you mentioned were fantastic. Um, David Lee, who's a distinguished engineer at IBM, and Randy Horowitz talked a little bit about what IBM is doing. You know, you've got this big organization. There's 12,000 people just in the office of the CTO. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they were shifting it from uh, root cause analysis focus to really learning from incidents. Yeah, absolutely. And so... That was, you know, many years of work, diligent work, and a lot of like experimenting. And I think they did a great job of sort of saying, here's, you know, yeah, we got some traction with this, but this kind of fell a little bit flat. And so that was really great. Um, Lauren Hochstein uh, gave a keynote on sort of advocating for change when there's different orientations towards change. Um, and that he called, uh, and I'll definitely air quote this because that was part of his talk, was your perception of reality is wrong or your reality is wrong. And I thought that was really insightful because oftentimes, you know, you're not going to change anybody's mind or anybody's perspective by telling them they're wrong. Uh, you kind of got to bring the receipts, so to speak. <laughs> we had uh, David Woods talked a lot about his work with resilience engineering across multiple domains and the importance of finding patterns in incident response work. And the patterns, uh, he kind of had a call to action, which was, hey, this is great if we're doing this within one team, within an organization or within an organization you know, Clint Byron from Spotify talked a little bit about some work that he did in trying to sort of find problems uh, across Spotify. But, you know, Dave was saying, this isn't just about one organization and the patterns across it, but we can abstract those patterns and say, what makes this hard in software, period? And that has a lot of value. That was a very provocative statement to make because it kind of shifts the mentality of if we are thinking about resilience and safety in software, this is a software problem. And so it's going to be solved by many voices, many perspectives, and the coalescing of those perspectives. So I thought that was really exciting as well. Uh, Courtney Nash talked about um, some of the work that she's done uh, with The Void and kind of the value of doing deeper incident analysis. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, no. You're going to have to tell us what you mean by The Void. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The Void is Verica's open incident database, and it's a a project that's been running for a couple of years now, um, looking at uh, both submitted and uh, public incidents that have been software-related incidents. And she's done, she's collected, uh, Nick, do you know how many incidents she has there now? I think about 10,000. Yeah. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, so she's kind of extracted, you know, different characteristics of these incidents from across this database um, and kind of made some comments and and observations, some analysis around that. One of which, uh, you know, also another very provocative thing to say, which is, hey, MTTX, MTT, you know, mean time to respond, mean time to detect, mean time to whatever, is actually not that useful. It's, it's not a great metric for us to use. And she, in the most recent report, kind of pointed to some more promising directions there. And at Jelly, we're actually working on a report uh, that's kind of trying to extend some of that thinking as well. So that was really exciting to kind of hear what she's been learning about. 
I absolutely love that idea. That idea of people not feeling isolated around my system is broken. Well, no, no, everybody's system is everybody has incidents. Yeah. Yeah, it's not you. It's software as a concept. <laughs> yeah. That is that it's a really powerful thing. It seems really simple, but it's also really hard to say because if you think that everybody else's system, you know, isn't kind of held together with duct tape and glue. Hopes and dreams. Hopes and dreams is what is, is what keeps <laughs> systems together. <laughs> Aspirations. If you think that everyone else is, you know, kind of has their has their stuff together, you're less likely to talk about failure. You're less likely to talk about what's hard. And then that really kind of drives our ability to learn across the community, to learn from one another. It drives that underground. And so it's not inconsequential to try and normalize this failure and to try and talk about what's hard. You know, there was a couple of other talks that I really loved. Pierman Schurman talked about, uh, he his talk was called You Are the Resistance, which kind of referenced a comment uh, that Richard Cook had made at, a, at Redeploy a few years ago, sort of saying like, sometimes you got to do this work you know, under the table, you have to experiment, you have to show that a different way of thinking and doing actually has merit. Because these paradigms about like, if you, you need to measure it, and you need to manage it are so prevalent. And this is really related, Jessica, to your talk about doing incident analyses without a template. Mm. That was another fantastic talk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because, Laura, you said earlier that the the other camp in safety science was about getting people to color between the lines. Mm-hmm. And yet your, your current camp, the LFI camp, uh, represents that it's only by coloring outside of the lines that we can ever get better at this. Yeah, I don't know if it's about like, that we have to color outside the lines, but to your point and Martin's point about these systems being degraded, it's that we're gonna color outside the lines. (laughs) And so if we disregard that fact, then we're not actually going to understand what life outside the lines actually looks like. And that means that we leave a lot of people with their hands on the keyboard very unsupported. Because the work as imagined in that world, which is that you don't ever go outside the lines versus the work as done, which is you're outside of the lines a lot of the time, means that that we kind of have a, a gap there between those two kind of models of how we think the world works. And how that gaps get filled is by experimenting, you know, someone who's on call at three in the morning and who's like, I don't know what to do here. I'm going to try some things. So if we have this idea that, well, you should have, could have, didn't, we lose the ability to say, well, what made sense to you about doing what you did? And then maybe rearrange the lines. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Redraw those boundaries and rethink about like, how do we help people cope with the next unexpected, unanticipated, unknowable event? I think that's, you know, very key to being on call and that anxiety that you get from, well, maybe I make things worse. And that anxiety of making things worse means that you do end up making things worse because you hesitate. (laughs) Yeah. And giving people that, um, and it's maybe an overused term at the moment, that psychological safety Mm -hmm. of being able to take that chance and just commit to it and do it. And if it goes wrong, it's fine. We'll learn from it. And I, I love that idea that we're, 
giving these new on-call engineers, these people who are new to that um, supporting live systems, that confidence to be able to go, I'm sorry, you know, it went down and I tried some things and some things didn't work, some things did work, but we got it back. It's good, and we'll learn from that, and then we'll redraw the lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll give a shout-out here to Stripe, actually. Um, Bridget Lane and Will Carhart gave two sort of companion talks. Um, they were they were different. They were Stripe's recipe, ingredients for heart-healthy on-call. And then uh, Will talked about using pre-mortems to support or to prepare for incidents. And that kind of speaks to that orientation that you're talking about, which is like, A, how do we help people to be prepared for kind of scary, unanticipated like events? And then also like, you know, what are some different techniques and, and models? And the pre-mortem is something that, you know, a safety science researcher, naturalistic decision-making researcher, Gary Klein uh, proposed. And so, yeah, it's this shift in the organization thinking about, let's think about surprise. Let's think about the ways in which you may not be prepared for this and help you be as comfortable operating in those ambiguous and uncertain states as possible. And that sort of goes back to this idea of why coordination matters so much in this world. Because one person's mental model of how that system works when it's large scale, distributed, continuously changing, is always going to be partial and incomplete. And so you have to, by virtue of the nature of the environment you're working in, you have to work with other people. Um, and so figuring out how to more effectively recruit those people, bring them up to speed so that when they jump in, they're as useful as possible during a moment in time where you don't have extra attention, you don't have extra time, this stuff really matters. You know, this is where incident analysis and, and kind of really using the actual data from your incident can help you to take that apart and say, where did people look? Who did they call? You know, what information was hard to access? And then those kinds of conversations can help you to improve your systems and also improve uh, the mental models uh, of the practitioners you know, it always comes back to like how we're trying to think about this at Jelly is I will say that that's one thing that's like really exciting about what we're doing is that we're trying to give access to what actually happened during the event, not the retrospective, like, oh, here's, you know, after we figured out what went wrong, all of the uncertainties and all of the rabbit holes that we went down and all of the difficulties in getting the right people in the room at the right point in time or on the call, like all that disappears and fades away and we don't notice it anymore. And so that's not really learning from your incidents. So learning from incidents isn't just about what went wrong in the software. It's about what went well in the response itself. Yeah. Uh, one thing I learned from the conference was this concept of incident analysis is really interesting. And people use these to learn from their incidents, not just about the software. The the like mitigations there are usually separate. Mm -hmm. uh, they certainly are at Honeycomb when we do our incident analysis. But studying the response itself. And some organizations have whole teams that do only this. Yeah, that's a, that is like a great point that like even trying to understand 
okay, I'm on board. I, I want to like, I want to take a new approach to this, but how do you do it? That's where I think uh, John Allspaw's, you know, he talked about some of the work that Indeed has been doing and sort of you referenced the team that they spun up around this. I think that was really useful. We had a talk from uh, Cooper Benson at Quizlet, you know, which is kind of the other side of the spectrum is like, they're just kind of getting their program up and running. But like, how do you as an IC sort of influence some of this change and help to drive some of this change if it's you're just like one person or you're part of a small team. You don't have a dedicated team to do this. And so really seeing the ways in which different organizations, uh, what are the techniques that they're using, and what are the practices that they're using that can help increase the amount of experimentation that we have going on within industry about what are the best ways to do this. Yeah, the conference was the first Elficon was really amazing because it was a bunch of innovators because it's a it's a new space. Yeah. And it's a cross-disciplinary space. And we have so much to learn from each other. And everybody was really there to do that and to make these connections and to find the patterns across our organizations. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is, uh, you know, we, we talked about this different orientation and many of the people that were there and I think many of the people that have been involved in this community and sort of trying to to change some of the ways that we have these conversations within software are really committed to this idea of normalizing failure, you know, of knowledge sharing, you know, not keeping the ways in which we have had success internally within our organization, not keeping that as a competitive advantage to ourselves, but rather sharing this across the industry and helping other organizations to improve as well. That's not insignificant because this is a competitive advantage. Understanding your systems at this level and being able to take the learnings from incidents and apply that to your training, to your onboarding, to your recruiting, to your retention, you know, to your tooling, to how you build your tooling and calibrate your tooling, that all makes you more reliable and gives your users a better experience. And so if you're going to keep that to yourself, the industry as a whole is not going to improve. And so it's not insignificant that people were so willing to share what they've you know learned from experimenting in this space. One thing I've noticed around um, organizations that have um, onboarding processes, they have deployment processes, is if you go down the list of the, the, the ways that you do things, you can pretty much go down that list. If it's not just do the thing, deploy the thing, anything that's in between has generally been because you've learned from an incident that something has happened and that you might need to think about this in a bit better way. So you put something in a process or you put something in a, an education um, context for people. Um, so if you look through people's um, processes, you can actually go back and actually pinpoint exactly where the incidents happened because that was when the documentation was updated, when the education for onboarding was updated. Updated. Yeah. Yeah. Just like your dashboards. Yep. <laughs> it's all gravestones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think, I think it's an interesting point because it sort of says, oh, there is something about incidents that makes the organization act right? That triggers these sort of like reflexes within the organization and that the reflexes to update documentation or create a new dashboard, uh, you know, to your point, Jessica, have limited 
value and they, they are perishable. They're going to get stale or they're going to get outdated or they're going to be, they're going to be insufficient uh, in some ways. And so instead, if we, I should say, and not instead, but like we build these processes and we help kind of create these um, repeatable processes within the organization, but we recognize that that's in addition to helping to improve the mental models and update and recalibrate the mental models of people who are going to have to respond in real time to unanticipated events. Yeah. For each incident, it's it's not just did we get it fixed. It's not only the mitigations we put into the software. It's who do we become as a team? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love that. I think that was uh, one of the things that I took away from your talk as well was that, you know, we are shaping culture, we're shaping interactions, we are shaping kind of the approaches to how we think that we need to improve and where we need to go. And so I think that like one of the ways, one of the things that I really liked about your talk as well was that you brought in a number of different voices from your colleagues. And so that is also very important when we think about this work is like, it's not just the engineers in the room. It's also the marketing people who launched the Super Bowl ad that all of a sudden drove, you know, <laughs> it, it, like unexpected amounts of volume that the the SRE team was unexpected, you know, did not know was happening. It's about the salespeople who are on the sharp end of those conversations and sort of hearing about where the pain points are for your customers. It's about understanding the leaderships and the pressures and constraints that they're working under relative to economic or regulatory or organizational um, pressures. And so it's really about being able to bring these uh, multiple diverse perspectives together to say, how do we understand these multiple, sometimes competing priorities so that we can be more adaptive in real time and try and optimize on as many criteria as possible? It makes us more resilient than uh, just simply following a script or following a playbook. Nick, you were one of the people at Honeycomb who was instrumental in getting all of us to show up at LFI and sponsor and and everything. Um, tell us who you are and, and how you got into this. Sure. So I'm Nick Travellini. I'm a technical customer success manager over at Honeycomb. And I've been involved with the Learning from Incidents community for, for several years now, since before I started working at Honeycomb last year. And I really was moved by the idea in LFI that mutually supporting colleagues and teammates, supporting each other, mutually beneficial relationships and, and the idea of reciprocity, that we work together, that we share our learnings and that we improve each other by supporting each other and we keep the system up by supporting each other is really crucial. And for me, why I wanted to participate in this is because I think that people are essential to making the system work. The technical components, the stuff below the line has to be made to work together with each other because data needs to be transformed from one format into another in order for one part of the system to work with another one. And guess what? It's the people who are making the decisions about how to do that transformation so that the data can move smoothly from one part of the system to another, for example. And so the idea of learning from incidents, of sharing our experiences to improve each other and support each other. And that helps us to build and maintain excellent digital infrastructure. 
that's what really moves me about LFI and one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this subject and contributing to the community. I think you bring up a really interesting point because it's like the data moves from one part of the system to another, but I can't tell you the number of times that, you know, in, in someone will say something in an incident and you're like, how did they know that? It was kind of this obscure piece of information like, oh, uh, you know, Martin's actually off this week and he's the only one that has, you know, he has this amazing dashboard that, that shows all of these things or, you know, this team's about to do a big migration. We need to talk to them before we push that deploy because otherwise it's going to interrupt, you know, what they're doing. And a lot of how that information flows through the organization is not necessarily through structured meetings or project updates. It is very ad hoc and emergent as well. And so there is a kind of an interesting aspect to how we think about structuring interactions between different teams across kind of boundary lines, both internal and external boundary lines, that is very important to this idea about resilience and reliability. And it often doesn't show up because it's not represented in official documents or diagrams or, you know, uh, uh, architectural representations. And that's part of that process tracing that happens above the line, right? You find these connections that exist. You you may have an org chart, but I promise you don't have a, a diagram of who knows who and who talks to who in your organization. Yeah, absolutely. It's these these hidden aspects of, of work um, or difficult to see aspects of work and of cognitive work uh, that there are techniques that are out there to help surface some of these. And I think that at the LFI community and some of the tooling that is being built around this is helping to increase that kind of observability as well. I think for me, one of the biggest things I've seen about learning from incidents is learning how other people have debugged that particular problem. Because like you say, you get that one person who has that one special dashboard that tells them about the thing that fixes the thing in you know half a second. Yeah. And that for me, when I've been running retros, um, obviously that's not the great term anymore, but you know, running incident retros at the time was, well, that person who fixed it, they fixed it quicker than I would have fixed it. So how did they do that? And that is invaluable because it allows you to say, well, maybe that dashboard should be public. Yeah. Maybe that dashboard should be part of the onboarding process. Maybe that dashboard should actually be the front page. Um, that you maybe maybe it should be email. Or, or maybe not. I mean, maybe another dashboard isn't the solution. <laughs> <laughs> but spreading around the knowledge that that one person has is so that the relevant dashboard can be constructed ad hoc through interactive queries. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was I was getting to that obviously. Um, um, <laughs> but you know, that, that just that idea that, you know, how did that person do it because there's everybody has it. Everybody has that person in the organization that knows every system inside and out and they're the ones that you want on call because they're the ones that can fix it really quickly, but there's one of them. Yeah. And we haven't invented cloning in a nice way yet. Um, so we can't take that person and replicate them 1,700 times. But what we can do is we can take that person's knowledge and we can allow the rest of the teams to understand it and give them that ability. Maybe it's access, maybe it's knowledge. We don't know, but that's 
for me, the biggest value add from doing that, um, that learning from that incident is how did that person do it? Socialize what that person knows. Yeah. And maybe it's the opposite way around. Maybe that person didn't know this thing. And then somebody in that meeting at the time when you're trying to look at that incident goes, well, why didn't you use this thing? Yeah. And that just makes everybody better. It makes everybody safer. It makes everybody feel like they're empowered to do the things. Yeah, and I think, you know, to kind of go back to the, an earlier comment about the difficulties of, of cognitive work is I think that like one of the things that you're describing there is these kinds of orientations and assumptions and beliefs and values that we bring or that we sort of use as lenses to bring our knowledge to bear. And so these orientations and assumptions about the system often come out when we go look at a certain part of the system or whether we create a dashboard because we're like, there's no monitoring on this, but I have this sense that it's really important for us to, to know what's going on over here. And so that level of diversity and variability in the way people think about the system and their beliefs about the system is actually a feature, not a bug, right? Like we want a certain amount of variability because it helps us to cover more bases, um, so to speak. And so I 100% agree with you sharing that knowledge, helping, you know, level everybody up and not trying to create homogenous, you know, incident responders, but rather encouraging that variability is, is really where resilience lives. Beautiful. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. This was so fun. Absolutely. It was an incredibly fun conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks everybody. Martin, welcome to the Learning from Incidents community. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a very accepting community. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I will do a little shout out for the, it's learningfromincidents.io. Um, there's a blog there. There's uh, some more information about the videos that were at the conference and more ways to engage. So come join us there. Great. And where can people find you? Ah, uh, you can find me at laura at jelly.io or Laura MD McGuire on Twitter, M-A-G-U-I-R-E. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you would like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Ollicast. That's O-1-1-Y-C-A-S-T. Ollicast is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com.